I've got my Beatles T-shirt on because, <laughs> hey, they're number one again. And the Stones were number one with the album a couple of weeks ago. So it was kind of like Groundhog Day, isn't it? <laughs> Do you believe that? That's crazy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another Tored Up interview. And, of course, we appreciate the time taken out by the artists to join us here on the show. And I want to say a special welcome to someone that I've known for quite a while now, and he's a good friend, but it's always great to catch up again. How are you, Sean Chambers? How are you? I'm doing very well, my friend. How are you doing? Not bad at all. Not bad at all. Surviving and keeping rocking and rolling. That's all we can do. All right. I love it. I love it. Uh, Sean, uh, maybe for the benefit of the people watching this, would you would you just give us a, your story of, of how you become involved in music and how it all comes down right up to the present? Uh, well, I knew that from a very young age that I wanted to play music. And my parents said that they would uh, let me choose any instrument that I wanted to play. And I chose drums right off the bat. Cause I, cause I'm always, you know, you know, I'm, I've always had that rhythm and the beat in my head. And my dad thought about it. My dad said, no, he goes anything but drums because we don't want to hear that all night long drums. So, <laughs> so my second choice was guitar. So for my <laughs> So for my 11th birthday, I mean, I'm sorry, on Christmas when I was 11 years old, they got me my first guitar and I started playing guitar. Um, back then, of course, you know, at that young age, I wasn't familiar with blues or any, didn't know anything about blues. And I was listening to all the classic rock stuff, you know, from back then. Uh, Led Zeppelin, you know, um, uh, the Beatles, Leonard Skinner, um, Oh, I mean, just all the rock bands, you know, um, classic rock bands, you know. Yeah. And uh, then one day when I was about 14 or 15 years old, a, a friend of mine who was a year or two older than me got his driver's license. And he said, hey, I got my license. I have a car. I'll come pick you up. We'll go for a ride. I said, OK, great. And he put in a cassette tape and it was Jimi Hendrix. And the first song that came on was Red House, the studio version. Right. And that's the first time that the hair on my arm stood up and I go, what is that? What kind of music is that? I mean, cause that's what I want to do because I had been playing for a few years, but I'd been just learning power chords and playing along with, you know, playing along with the band, the rock bands that I was listening to. And then I wanted to kind of do it just, I wanted something a little different. And when I discovered Hendrix playing Red House, I knew right off the bat, that's the kind of music that I want to play. So I listened to Jimi Hendrix for a couple years, nothing but Hendrix for a couple years. And um, then I started really like learning about a lot of Hendrix's influences. You know, like Hendrix played with the Isley Brothers for several years. So I started learning about some R&B um, stuff. And then I started learning about the old blues influences like Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and, um, you know, Sunhouse, Lightning Hopkins, stuff like that. Um, and so instantly I just kind of grabbed something about the Texas guitar players. And at the time, I didn't know they were all from Texas, but something about the Texas guitar players, like, for example, Albert Collins, Johnny Winter, Freddie King um stevie ray you know uh i mean billy gibbons the list goes on and on um really grabbed my attention 
And then I started learning about their influences going back into the blues. And um, so that's what I started realizing at that point around the age about 15. This is the kind of music that I want to play and pursue. And um, um, I would say uh, probably around, uh, let me think, probably around, probably around the time I was 18, I started my own band. It was called Code Blue. And here in the United States, Code Blue means emergency, like in the hospital. So it's called Code Blue uh, Rhythm and Blues. Um, so, um, and we used to play a lot of covers and, you know, stuff like that. And then in 1990, I did my first album in 1998. And um, the guy who started the label and found me the distribution deal started managing Hubert Sumlin, who, who was the guitar player for Howlin' Wolf for 25 years. Wow. And he said that, um, he goes, listen, he goes, I started managing Hubert Sumlin and he's doing a show in Memphis, Tennessee. It was called Bluestock. And Bluestock was a festival that took place all the way down Beale Street. And there was four or five different bands every night in each different club, you know, down Beale Street in Memphis. And uh, so people could figure out, you know, which bands they wanted to see and where they were playing. So we played a place called the Black Diamond, which was right next to B.B. King's in Memphis. And both of those places have gone out of business since then, but no longer there. Oh. But. So we played with Hubert that one night. We woodshedded for a couple months before then, learning the material. And then we played with him that one night. And it was like it was uh, just the chemistry was there, you know, and Hubert recognized it, too. And he, after the show, he said, man, he goes, I want you guys to be my full-time group, you know, cause Hubert has, had always been a side man. He played with Muddy Waters, but primarily Howlin' Wolf, you know? Um, and so I started playing with Hubert as his guitarist and band leader. And, um, that lasted about four and a half years. And then, uh, after that, I kind of went out on my own and started my own solo career and, uh, just kind of took it from there, and now here we are. Yeah. 
Yeah, and as back was it was it twenty twenty or twenty one? You you recorded an album, a kind of a, a tribute to Hubert Sumlin as well. Was that whatever COVID was on? You, you couldn't really tour at that stage. Yes, we 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 flew to on February twenty ninth of uh, twenty twenty. We had a gig right here in Florida. And on March 1st, we were supposed to, which was the following day, we were supposed to start recording our new album, which was a tribute to Hubert Sumlin. So we went to the airport right after the gig and sat there for five or six hours waiting for our flight to go to New Jersey to record our album. And um, so we started recording. And two days after that, uh, we were supposed to be there from the 1st through the 7th. And then on the 9th, we had a European tour booked. And so right around the 3rd or the 4th of March, as we were recording our album, the COVID thing started really uh, becoming really aggressive and being a big concern, you know. And so before we stopped doing that session and shortly before we stopped doing, stopped doing that session and we're done with the session, uh, the European tour had been canceled due to COVID. Um, so, but we got the record done. And... Um, that had been where I had done my two previous albums, Trouble and Whiskey and Welcome to My Blues. Um, and unfortunately, you know, um, I got the, I got the final product. I got, the, I got the mixes and the masters for the record. And then the producer and the engineer, which was also the label owner of the label I was on at the time passed away. Oh, so I had a final product. I had, you know, I had a, a, a record done, but there was no label to distribute it, you know. And uh, with that being said, Ben Elliott is who passed away. And he's 
he had been in that studio for about 30 years, the same studio and recorded everybody from Keith Richards to Eric Clapton, um, you know, Leslie West, um, anybody you could name. He, he was just a really brilliant, brilliant engineer. Savoy Brown, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Matter of fact, they did their record, their uh, blues all around their last record. They were recording right before I did my record. And um, so he sent me the masters and everything was mastered. And then I didn't hear from him for like a week and found out he passed away. And it was really sad. Uh, that's a different story. We were really close and really good friends. Um, but with that being said, I had an album done with no label. So about a year later, I connected with uh, a record label called Cordo Valley Records. And Cordo Valley Records offered to pick up my record, my album to Hubert, which was called That's What I'm Talking About. And um, so we released the record on Cordo Valley Records and it came out July 2021. Um, and we didn't get to do a bunch of touring behind it due to COVID, you know, and um, we're, you know, for, I'd say for about two, two and a half years, we didn't really do a bunch of touring because of COVID, you know, like, like a lot of bands out there. And, um, but now we're just starting to get back on the road, get things happening. Uh, me and the guys are working on a new album. Um, I've got the Savoy Brown rhythm section playing with me now. Wow. Um, Unfortunately, Kim Simmons, the legendary and great Kim Simmons, who I grew up listening to, passed away in December of 2022. And I, um, uh, I, I've, been, I've been doing some gigs with, with the Savoy Brown Rhythm Section while he was sick. And he gave us his blessings and told us to keep, you know, the, the music needs to keep going. He gave us his blessings and then shortly after passed away. So for the last year or so, I've been playing with um, the Savoy Brown Rhythm Section. And we'll be coming to Europe November 15th. We're flying to Europe. I think the 17th is our first show. And um, it's just a great band. It's a fantastic band. Pat DeSalvo on bass, uh, Garnett Grimm on drums, myself on guitar. So we're just keeping it pure and raw, like, you know, as a three-piece, kind of like Savoy Brown did. And I, I was a three-piece format for years um, during my career. And off and on, I would have like a Hammond B3 player. Um, but we're back to touring. And in 2024, our tour schedule is starting to uh, look, look, look really good in the States and Canada and Europe and stuff. So that's kind of where we're at right now, you know. Something gonna change your life My friends, they all told me Man, there's something gonna change your life Gotta have some of that brown sugar Man, 
You know, Sean, it's, you know, there was two, two and a half years of COVID restrictions. And to be honest, it's nearly taken as long, even after it officially ended, for things to get back to some kind of normality too. It's, it's really taken the most of five years from it began till it really ended. Right. I, I agree. Which I is agree. a long time. And, I mean, a lot of venues went out of business. A lot of artists too that, weren't you know maybe uh, just financially wasn't it had to do something else because the bills to pay they couldn't they, they couldn't keep it together which was really sad there was it lots is. of sound engineers people at work that i know or two that ended up they maybe went to other parts of the world to get work and stuff like that and that those 
those kind of people are not easy to get either or easy to replace. And I mean, even some of the bigger bands, even the, you know, even the likes of the Stones and Biggers, even to get some of them people back if they've went somewhere else, it's not simple either. And some of the bands, I think I've been told in the past now, and maybe James even could correct me on it, but the Stones and ACDC use the same touring people. They, oh, they're the same right? rig crew. So, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, it, 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 the two, the, both of them can't go on tour at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a finely, it's it's very finely crocheted the whole thing. And if some people leave it or do something else, all of a sudden, it 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 gets a wee bit more complicated. Um, right. But the the. the that's what I'm talking about. The type of the Hubert something that come from a catchphrase that Hubert had. He used to say that when he'd be on song, didn't he? Yeah, we've talked about that before. You and I have. Um, yeah, whenever you did something that Hubert liked, he would go, "That's what I'm talking about, partner. That's what I'm talking about." You know what I mean? So Ben Elliott actually came. The the gentleman that passed away that was my producer and my engineer and owned the record label that I was on that released my last few CDs. You know, he, he knew Hubert as well, because it's funny because things come full, full circle sometimes. And I, I was on Hubert's record back in 2002, maybe 2003, somewhere around there. And he had a bunch of special guests on Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, Levon Helm, Mudcat Ward, Bob Margolin, uh, just off the top of my head, everybody wanted to play on his record. And I felt like, you know, just uh, a fly on the wall. Like I was, I felt lucky to be there. Like what's a young kid like me doing here with all these legendary people? You know what I mean? So I, I was lucky enough to play two songs on his record, but um, yeah, that was his saying. It was, uh, if you did something right, he would go, that's what I'm talking about, partner. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> so Ben Elliott said, why don't we name the record? That's what I'm talking about. Because when I rec when we recorded that record, it was with Ben Elliott at American Showplace Records back in 2002. And then around 2016, I ended up being reintroduced to Ben through um, my radio promotions guy whose name is Rick Lusher and then picked me up as a solo artist. So all of a sudden I was back in the studio where I'd recorded with, with, with Hubert, you know, almost two decades ago. And, um, it was, uh, it was a really, really cool experience, uh, recording there. It was, uh, Ben had a way of bringing the best out of his musicians and, you know, being in the studio is more of a sterile environment. It's not like playing live where you have the energy and it's a full circle, you know, between you and the crowd. It's And he had a way of making you feel comfortable and getting the best out of you. And I just really miss that guy. But at the same time, I'm really happy to be on Quarter Valley Records. They're a great group, great, great group of people, great label. And um, so we're just, you know, at this point, we're just trying to get back out on the road and get our wheels turning again. Would you say we're just talking about studios there? And, you know, Sean, um, things change dramatically over the years with streaming platforms and everything. But I think from what 
from the way we've talked there, I think the record label still has very much a part to play in promoting artists and they still have a very important role to play. And I don't think it should ever be the case that they don't. Uh, and, they, you know, I've seen with other friends that have signed to good labels and, and they've done amazing work with them to get really good sales out, you know, like... Um, yeah. Like even take our friend Anthony Gomes like, and his high voltage rock like is nearly 50 weeks in the chart and he signed with Rat Pack Records who he speaks very highly of and you know there's lots of really good labels out there and I think they're going to survive and they're going to prosper and they're going to help the artists too so I think there was a period of transition between the two things. But I, I, I can, standing back, looking at it, I, I can see there's some really good partnerships being formed between artists and labels, and there's a lot of things, good things happening from it. Would you agree, Sean? I, I totally agree, yeah. I totally agree. The only, the only thing is it's getting harder for record labels to make, to make money because of all the streaming platforms. You know, um, Pandora, Spotify, you know, uh, the list goes on and on. So while it's good because people get to discover your music on those streaming platforms, they don't pay any money. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it hurts the artists and, and the labels. So it's almost a passion of the love. It's almost a passion of, you know, of. And what about, what about these like merch sales, CDs, albums at gigs? Would you do much of that, Sean, or is that part of what you do? As far as, do you mean merchandise? Yeah, like say if you're doing a gig, would you have shorts, albums, CDs to sell? Oh, um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. We have um, my wife, Karen, who you know, um, typically typically tours with us when she's able to. And we have CDs, T-shirts, um, koozies, which, you know, hold the, uh, I think they're more popular in the, in the States, but the koozies that you hold the, your can of Coke or beer or whatever, and to keep calling. Ah, yes. Yeah, we saw those. Mean, yeah. And posters, you know, posters. And so we rely, we actually rely when we're touring a lot on our merch sales because that, that helps keep our wheels turning. And, um, you know, it's, it's a big part of touring is your merch sales. I would think, you know, particularly say if someone's at a gig and they've had a great time, of which, of course, they're going to when you're playing, and then at the end of the night, you know, even though, right, I can listen to your album on Spotify, I like to maybe buy your CD and maybe we get a photograph and you sign it and stuff. And that's a kind of a permanent memento souvenir of the night. Yes. And, and I think we all kind of realise, you know, the artist has to be supported in some. Me, it's kind of, I like to buy shorts and stuff like that. I love that. And I would... I would also buy CDs, particularly at a live gig, if somebody's selling them. Because I reckon at the end of the day, if we want live music to continue, uh, the artists have to be getting a reasonable income out of it. Otherwise, it stops. Uh, and that really, music is so, so important because there's very few things in this world that can actually, in the space of an hour and a half to two hours, can someone walks into the gig, maybe they haven't happened, they've had a tough day, maybe, yeah, I'm, I'm going to this, I'll enjoy this, and when they leave it, 
whatever negativity there was earlier on in the day is gone because they've watched you rocking your heart out. They've sang along with some of the songs if they're fans and they know them. And when they're walking out from the gig, they're talking to people they probably know. And they're saying, geez, that was great. And, you know, he's playing wherever he's playing the next time. And that's what I call a natural high. It's, it's, it's not fabricated. It's not a substance. It's not some tablet. It's music. It's, it's music that reaches right into your heart, that lifts your spirit. And very few other things can do that, Sean. Well, you know, I think what you're saying is, is, is exactly on point. And um, they say music is the worldwide language, you know. it's, um, um, And I agree 100%. You know, um, one thing Hubert Sumlin used to tell me when we played together, as he said, whether there's, you know, 20 people in a small club or we're playing in front of 10,000 people at a big festival, he said, whatever, the, whatever it is, those people paid their money to see a good show and they worked all week long.